moving on to a chapter called, Dave? Les Rêveurs. Or? The Dreamers. <laughs> right, so I'll tell you what, you'd think that we scripted it, some of the, uh, some of the smoothness that comes out of this pod, uh, podcast sometimes. <laughs> Marco could have had a much more fulfilling life just marketing these magic umbrellas. And then it's back to Bailey. It's the it's the shift in t- forward in time that nobody was waiting for, which is uh, <laughs> spending time with Bailey again. Welcome to part two of Shark Live Royals coverage of the Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. I'm Matt, and I'm Dave. Hello. So this is the second of what will probably be four parts looking at uh, the Night Circus. Last time we looked at the quite quite help quite helpfully the night circus is divided into separate parts anyway. So last time we looked at part one, which was called Primordium, which basically uh, took us through the setting up of the night circus, this magical place where people go to enjoy a circus which doesn't include horrible things like scary clowns and tortured animals, which is quite nice. That's a real real kind of uh, lack isn't it in if we're going to present a realistic circus like i mean so everybody can do without animal cruelty right but scary clowns are not scary clowns like one of the central parts of what makes a circus a circus yeah now i suppose we haven't journeyed into the circus yet so mm. there may be a scary clown lurking around but uh, <laughs> spoilers sorry spoilers. yeah but uh dave come with me don't be shy let's go in and explore the night circus it's a magical world. <laughs> um, obviously, guys, if you want to uh, contribute, uh, give it, tell us what you think about about this book or about any of the others ones we've done. We've done The Hobbit and we've done The uh, Old Man in the Sea uh, before as well. Then you can just send us an email to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll, uh, we'll read the best ones out uh, at the end of this series. Okay, so let's go in part two, Illumination, and this is Opening Night, and it's called, the, the first mini chapter's called Inception, and we see the grand opening of the Night Circus, and the centrepiece is this cauldron, which, mm. um, which burns with white fire eventually. It, the, the flames change colour as different archers shoot flaming arrows into the cauldron, and eventually it's white flames, and at the same time, these uh, these twins are born, um, mm. sort of travelling circus children, uh, Winston and Penelope, who eventually become known by the nicknames Poppet and Widget. So and uh, seem oh, to embrace those nicknames, which is more notable for me. Like yeah, they love precisely it. what what must it do to you being born in a magical, possibly not quite real circus, such that <laughs> as a child you're willing to accept being called Widget. Yeah. yeah. No, no child at the schools I went to would have would have put up with being called widget. We see two more uh, points of views of opening night. The second one, uh, the mini chapter called Sparks, is mm. from Marco's point of view. He's the uh, the male competitor behind the night circus, and uh, he we find out that he creates this cauldron with white fire. It's one of his sort of uh, moves in this competition because basically Marco and Celia. Are trying to outdo each other now in in the confines of the circus, and this is the first big stunt that Marco pulls, mm. and uh, and Celia sees it and thinks, right, I'm going to have to find some way of retaliating. So this, I suppose, gives us an idea of of where it's going in terms of this competition. Yeah, 
but I, there was something quite interesting in I thought this was a really interesting little sort of prelude I thought oh it's fascinating I you know presumably you know we'll, we'll, this or this is what the book's about you know there's going to be magic trick after magic trick and we're going to understand how they constitute a competition and you don't really like this is about as much explanation as mm. you ever receive Marco will do something apparently extraordinary like making a bonfire that never goes out and Celia will do something equally extraordinary and then they'll kind of go back and forth and you don't really these two characters spend so much time talking about how they don't understand what their competition is supposed to be about but they in which case why on earth would you have the idea of making impossible illusions to compete with each other <laughs> you just kind of go oh i don't know what this competition is supposed to be about like how do you know it's not a baking competition um, the other opening night uh, perspective is Smoke and Mirrors, and this is just, uh, uh, there's not a lot to say about this, but Chandresh, the guy who's running the place, kind of feels the the sudden, the, the magic of Marco. He, he, you get the feeling that, uh, it, it's a theme that the, the book continue continuously goes back to throughout the Night Circus, that there's all these invisible strings holding everybody together and when when a big mm. event happens like this it's felt by other members of the of the group and chandresh mm. feels this impact um in a, in a separate way of just seeing a cool thing happening mm. and, and also and also tara one of the uh, one of the sisters uh she begins to suspect something that there might be something else to this circus other than just putting on a really a really interesting place for people to come and take a look around and you can't fault their instincts. They're absolutely dead on. As it turns out, this, this circus that only runs at night and transforms itself across the landscape by, uh, in, with uncanny speed mm. is indeed not just not your average circus. Yeah. Um, after this, we move to something a, a, a small passage entitled The Hanged Man. And this, is, this, comes, this happens a few times in the book where we go back to the first person perspective of almost ourselves being in the book experiencing one of the tents and it's they're, they're some of my favorite passages in the book because i think the strongest thing about the book is the circus itself the best character is the circus itself because mm. it's constantly interesting and charming and amazing in a way that you can't really it just completely takes you away from reality and shows you something different. And the hangman, which is a, it's kind of, it's an axe, which is kind of a combination of a high wire and a bungee jump. Um, yeah. But but better than that, really, <laughs> um, is a good example of that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and one thing that Erin Morgenstern is absolutely dead on with is this sense of like making an idea of a circus that you would want to go to. Mm. Um instead of a circus being a place where you're basically can't believe it's still happening and you're kind of just waiting for people to screw up <laughs> a circus where it is all genuinely flawless and illusions that are like they are marvels after this we do another one of these jump forwards in time to see what bailey's up to uh, who's the futuristic i say futuristic it's the turn of the 20th century um <laughs> Guy what a who... time to be alive! <laughs> Who's uh, having a wander around the circus? He he goes he, he goes back once the circus appears in Massachusetts again. Um, if you remember, he he trespassed last time and met this little girl uh, who led him out, and he's going back again a few years later now to see if he can see her again. So he goes when when the circus opens. We spend some time with him wandering around. He sees the contortionist at work. He sees Celia's act. Uh, Because she performs as an illusionist there in the circus. 
and mm. she sees this statue figure it's like a living statue um all in white and beneath is a little plaque saying uh, in in memoriam um which mm. makes us think oh has somebody died in the yeah. in the period between the two yeah and i think there's there is this interesting little strand through which she's very again she's very very good at folding it in where it be, there are just these little little bombs of kind of menace mm. in amongst this kind of quite magical oh, floaty they were tense you know so the next chapter is called Rules of the Game, Dave. Right. At which point, my heart leaps with joy. I am overwhelmed. I'm thinking I'm a third of the way into this book and they're finally going to explain to me the basic plot dynamic, which is shaping yeah. the actions of all of my primary characters, right? And, and I wait for it. And does it happen, Matthew? Does it, eh? No, it doesn't happen. It does not happen. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so Marco tries to get the... Uh, a-A-A-H, the G-man, the grey man, to explain what's going on. And he doesn't really explain anything particular, uh, you know, which is anything, he doesn't say anything particularly useful. Um, we keep slip, skipping between Marco and Celia here. Celia is making, for one of her next tricks, uh, a carousel with the help of the engineer, Mr... Mr. What's, the, what's the engineer called? Barris. Mr. Barris, that's right. Um, so... So there's that. Uh, there's there's a few letters sent between Marco and Isabel, and you get the feeling that the the distance between them is putting a bit of a strain on a relationship that was never really very strong, at least as far as Marco was concerned. Anyway, I don't really understand why she does what she does. Do you know what I mean? Like you know, he's earlier on in the book we've had this scene where so he meets her and uh, changes her reality so that he's in a more romantic environment and they kiss. Which, hmm. as I'm sure you know, we're supposed to think, is not exactly like giving a magical rehypnol for reasons that are not clear to me. Right? <laughs> but, but Marco is supposed to be a sympathetic cynic. character. You're so such it's... a cynic, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it is, isn't it? Though it's like, look, I'm not really charismatic or interesting or uh, engaging enough to really talk to you as another human being. So magic, now kiss me. <laughs> um, so we have a scene wherein we're supposed to not instantly turn against Marco as a character. And they start this relationship, which is more kind of implied than explored. But then he, he runs up against this problem where he's like, oh no, you know, clearly the fight is going to take place in this circus and this woman's just been hired as my opponent. Um, and Isabel's response is, in a sense, incredibly self-sacrificing. You know, yeah. presumably she has a life in London and she's just like, no, I'll chuck that all in. I'll go, you know, I'll go and I'll be your, your man on the ground. I'll be your spy in this circus, which nobody really knows about or can explain. Um, I'll give up my life and go and do that for you. The, the book really does explore different ways of, of being in love, doesn't it? There's a real uh, Ooh, sense through the deep. book. Isabel is the, the classic character of, of someone who is in love with someone else who doesn't love them. Mm. And, and you see it so many times in different people's relationships where one person loves someone and the other one doesn't. And that the first person will do anything for the other person. And mm. the and, and the other, and the and the other person isn't really mithered either way, mm. and uh, and that uh, you can compare that to the the sort of the stuff between Marco and Celia later, and the difference in his reaction between the two the two different characters. And we'll come on to that a bit later on. The the book does something interesting here with you've got this strain through the letters between Marco and Isabel, and immediately after, um, Marco creates this ice garden which really charms Celia. 
and mm. you can just see you know the shifts in relationships happening here already um even though the the main characters maybe don't really realize it yet and mm. the rules of the game uh chapter ends with Isabel and Marco meeting and again this isn't a particularly pleasant uh you know meeting of uh, two lovers is it no no not at all it's you know increasingly frosty and yeah. um I, I really need to become less frustrated with this book <laughs> <laughs> yeah like marco turns up again and i'm like i you know i just i feel no tension at all because i i've already decided that he's a bit of a wanker we move on to there's a chapter called tasting in which the the clockmaker uh, frederick thiessen uh visits the circus sees his clock there which he made and it's the beginnings of his obsession with the circus really um and then there's a chapter called Chaperoned, where Poppet and Widget, we basically find out that Poppet and Widget, the two kids born in the circus, rather unsurprisingly have powers of their own. Um, Poppet can uh, kind of see into the future by looking at the st- through the stars, but um, she's not very good at it. She can't really explain things very clearly, but she sees like hints of things to come. And mm. Widget is kind of the opposite. He sees histories imprinted on people things that they've done and experiences that they've had um he says a bit later on in the book he 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 gives a good explanation where he says um things that have happened to people and people's experiences stay on them like icing stays on people's fingers after they've eaten Mm. uh, like a donut or something i thought that was quite a nice way of explaining it but what, what did you make of these two powers i i did quite like these two characters because Unlike basically everybody else in the book, because they're kids, they don't have this kind of um, what an unworthy person would call pretentious, quite, you know, Mm. this kind of performer's mystique, love of mystique, kind of, oh, you'll never know, what am I doing? Am I doing something? Do you know? Do I know? You know, they they have, they're quite matter-of-fact about the fact that they can do these extraordinary things. Yeah, and there's a, there's a prediction that Poppet makes. She makes a vague prediction about someone dying again, so we're given this little sense of foreboding mm. uh, before we move on to Wishes and Desires. Uh, mm. This is where we, we spend a bit of time with Isabel, um, and there's the, there's the stuff about the wishing tree, which is another, I think it's one of the tents which Celia sets up, which is people sort of light candles from other people's wishes to create more wishes of their own. It's uh, this one's probably one of the more vague tents, but uh, it seems like quite a nice idea. Can you imagine in a million years how you would find that enchanting? Like you, you walk into a tent and there's a tree, right? mm. a tree in a tent. That's quite impressive for an itinerant circus. Like this mm. is a spectacle, right? And the tree has candles hanging from the branches, so you've got a flammable thing inside an flammable environment mm. with flames hanging from it, which is to say rising towards it, and somebody's like well whatever you wish you can hang on these branches but to be honest at that point i would say i i wish for a fire safety official i don't know i think that'd be pretty cool to go into sit to, to come walk into a tent and see all that i mean yeah you would want to know where the immediate exit was <laughs> uh, just in case but i think it'd be quite a striking uh, experience but uh yeah that's very true of course it would be it would be striking and sparking and burning and and melting experience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we move on to atmosphere, which is a party, which uh, which is held, uh, or a probably to be more consistent with the feel of the of the book. It's a soiree, 
rounded uh, at Chandresh's. <laughs> excellent, and... excellent use of that word there. I think there's no way you could describe it as a meal while the word soiree goes on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Celia attends and um, and he's talking to her insubstantial father. Who's, who's, uh, who, who has become a ghost for reasons that are not clear. Yeah, and and she's talking to him when she's when Marco uh, appear like comes in and sees her mm. and wonders what on earth she's up to, uh, but this is their first real meeting, I think, and also the one of the sisters uh, who we saw at the, uh, when the when the circus opened had a feeling that something wasn't quite right. She's described as having quite a haunted appearance at this party, and you get the feeling that she's pulling at the you know picking at the seams of the night circus now and yeah. is a little bit disturbed about what she's uncovering. Yeah, and and it's a really good sense of foreboding that it brings. Let's move on to um, Revers. Revers? Revers. Revers. Les Revers. Yeah, so we move the on dreamers. to a chapter. So, so we move on to a chapter called, Dave? Les Revers. Or? The Dreamers. <laughs> So I'll tell you what, you'd think that we scripted it, some of the uh, some of the smoothness that comes out of this pod, uh, podcast sometimes. <laughs> so this chapter is about uh, the creation of this group of people who, uh, like a, almost like a, a night circus fan club, who yeah. spend a, almost spend good parts of their lives following the circus around and effectively fall in love with the circus. And mm. it's based around the guy who made the clock uh, called uh, Mr. Thiessen, who begins writing for a newspaper just putting down his experiences when he visits the night circus and eventually this community uh, begins to form around him they have their own sort of fashion sense where they, they wear a black coat with a scarlet scarf or something colorful to mark themselves it's to, to simultaneously blend in with the circus and mark themselves out as only being visitors and the the chapter sort of climaxes with celia uh, writing to uh, mr thiessen so he becomes really deep, more deeply involved with the circus. Then, um, a few thoughts, Dave, on on this group and on what it's how it builds into the overarching story. I actually think to start with, I kind of felt like this this kind of thread was a bit kind of quite pointless, really. Like if it's supposed to be the story of this circus and these two individuals and their fight and so on. Hmm. Um, why do we need to know that there were loads of people who were impressed with them, let alone what those people chose to wear as a sign of that? Um, but actually, on reflection, I, I think it's quite important because it can't be denied that the community that you experience around a particular work of art can be can become as important to you as the work of art is itself. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about art, is that it brings people together. And it yeah. enables people to share something that's quite extraordinary and might only have ever lurked in the back of their heads till now. And it brings it out and it puts it on a stage and it says, not only is this okay, it's actually shared. It's communal. Yeah, I like it. I, I really liked it because it, I think it, it added some texture to, uh, to, to, to this whole uh, experience of the Night Circus. Yeah. And it would, it, it would create this... Um, the, the, this kind of group, I think. This kind of amazing circus, this... A, this incredible experience well you would get a fan club of people going around that there are there are worse things that people get obsessed about there are more <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right things. there yes <laughs> okay let's move on to collaborations which is where uh marco meets the engineer mr barris and they talk about the fact that he's worked with celia before 
to help mm. her make this carousel, if you remember. And mm. and he wants to do something with Mr. Barrett Snow. It's basically this tent. I think it's called the Labyrinth, we find out later. And it's a tent of loads of different rooms. And this is in, important because Celia and Marco start working together on this. Mm. And Marco leaves empty places for Celia to build rooms in, and he does, and she does the same for him. And it's a really nice uh, way of showing that these two characters are beginning to come together in ways that maybe the 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 sponsors, uh, the the grey guy and Prospero, didn't mm. expect. I mean, there's something really kind of intimate, isn't there, in this? If the thing that's defined them both as people is the practice of magic, yeah. then sharing the practice of magic is is incredibly intimate i have to say i i was still kind of waiting for this to turn out to be a fight like i was expecting there to be a fight between celia and marco and the book to be about this conflict which is in my defense is what the book consistently claims it's going to be about and so this scene like in my head i've got a sort of magical kind of spy movie thing going on where it's like he's a double agent he's a triple agent Who's he working yeah. for? He's going to yeah. set them off against each other. There's going to be character tension. Not a chance. <laughs> he's just, they, they have quite a polite conversation in which Mr. Barris goes, well, to be honest, my greatest pleasure would be to work for you both. And Marky goes, absolutely, I trust you completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The uh, the next chapter is called The Ticking uh, ticking of the Clock. Mm-hmm. And it's... So, the, so Tara, uh, sh- she visits Mr. Barris, the engineer, and they talk about how they are the people involved in the circus are aging more slowly than everybody else. And uh, and she wonders what other effects the circus are, is having on the people involved. She says, I don't think any of us knew what we were getting ourselves into when, uh, when they started this. Mm. So it's just another sense of foreboding about all is not well in this circus. And um, Mr. Barris doesn't seem to be as bothered about it or he's more um submissive to the idea yeah. uh, but but tara you feel is is continuing to to try and find out more and, and dig a little bit deeper i tell you what actually like this as well as being another example of where they kind of say that something is happening and i haven't really seen much evidence of evidence of it elsewhere in the text you know nobody's getting older but it's never really explained how or why that might be a good or a bad thing or what the implications of that might turn out to be yeah. It's just we're all clearly entangled in the circuit. Yeah. Um, oh, I think I think that is the that is the the point. It's that it's that's yeah, the only it, point it's trying to make. She puts a value place. You know, she talks about it as though it's something to be worried about or afraid of. And while I can see why that might be true, I I'm not getting that from the text. I'm just getting that from a general sense of you know when magic is not doing what you're expecting magic to do, it could end up being dangerous for you. It's like playing with fireworks. I suppose from her point of view. I get. I don't. I don't think that some of the people working on this circus are, are supposed to really understand the extent to which it's magic. I think it's just very clever illusions. And oh, if something like something like you're not aging as quickly, it can't possibly be an illusion. So mm. then you start to wonder. Well, what haven't I been told? Someone must know that this is real magic. And mm. and then you start picking at the seams. The circus is kind of presented as as this place you know which it's all a bit kind of out of control and it feels like it should be in control because it's all just the creation of human imagination and human activity but it it gets away from people and starts to change them 
this is a parallel of like your big system, whether it's a corporation like Microsoft or an organization like the NHS, where kind of superficially quite understandable aims become unknowably complex and difficult to navigate. It's a parallel so, I wasn't expecting you to draw, I'll be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a view into my damaged psyche, perhaps. <laughs> So anyway. the, the, the magician's umbrella, um, mm. this is the circus is closed for rain. Mm. So Celia picks up an umbrella, um, heads out into the night, goes to a coffee shop, meets Isabel. They do a bit of card reading, tarot card reading. Mm. Um, and then later on, Celia, on, the, on her walk back, meets Marco in the rain, who mm. uh, says that it's his brolly that she's holding. And it turns out it's a magical brolly, which keeps the rain off all of your body. And they have this moment in the street. And again... It's another sense of the continuing distance between Marco and Isabel, and yeah. she cuts quite a sad and tragic figure in in this in this chapter, yeah. and the, the the growing sense that something is beginning to happen between these two characters who are supposed to be opponents. Yes, that's that's very true, and again, it's very romantic, and it's set in Prague actually, isn't it? Which is exactly mm. the kind of place you want to set a scene uh, like this. Yeah. Um, Although again, I have to, I have to say, you know, I I have to be the um, the wasp at the picnic, and point out that Marco could have had a much more fulfilling life just marketing these magic umbrellas. Can you imagine <laughs> if Western civilization had had an umbrella that magically kept all the rain off you without fail since 1894? It had changed the face of Manchester. It would change the face of mankind. Never mind, never mind the microchip. No, no, no. So uh, we go. We we have another experience of the circus where we go into the reflections and this the, the hotless uh, it's a chapter called reflections and distortions it's barely a chapter and it's just an experience of a tent which is kind of like a crazy hall of mirrors tent mm. and then it's uh and then it's back to bailey it's the it's the shift in t- forward in time that nobody was waiting for which is uh <laughs> spending time with bailey again uh <laughs> yeah I think more time with the, week the fascinating bailey yeah, one of the weak points in the book for me. This, I, whenever we, I got them to another Bailey chapter, I just think, oh, how long is it? Let's get, let's get back to the good stuff. But anyway, yeah. he, 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 you know, he, he has a wander around the circus again. Um, he, he goes in for the, a card reading with Isabel, and uh, and at the end of it, he asks what Isabel's for Isabel's name, and she says, mm. oh, you know, you're the first person ever to ask me that who I've done a yeah. reading for. And that's really sad that no, no that yeah. no one's been polite enough to even ask for a name before. And I suppose it sets Bailey apart as as someone yeah. who's a bit different as well. I actually thought that was a really nice little critique, and this is something the book is full of. What kind of spectacle and illusion does to the way we interact with the people we see performing them? The next chapter is the Wizard in the Tree. In this chapter, Widget tells a story about a wizard who tells his magical secrets to a beautiful girl um, mm. and then this beautiful girl uses them to trap him inside a tree and mm. uh, so things don't turn out well for this trusting wizard who is betrayed and the the parallel you can draw here is you know widget sees things in people and sees histories and you can wonder is this a history of somebody you know is there more truth to this story than it just being a story he's plucked out of thin air mm. yes yeah that's very true and and again for some reason i didn't find widget as irritating as i find everybody else who does this kind of questioning mysterious kind of thing like i thought 
I was yeah. willing to go with it in this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Temporary places is uh, this is where they get a bit of action, I suppose. Uh, hang oh, on, sorry, hang on. on. Yeah. Let me get my action pants on after <laughs> half a book of my mysterious slacks. Um, so it's the continuing journeys of Tara, who is mm-hmm. who is trying to find out more about the circus, and after getting a business card from Mr. Barris, which mm. relates to uh, the man in the grey suit, she goes to find him. She asks him some awkward questions, and he effectively hypnotises her into stopping. She's, he yeah. kind of says, oh, isn't there a train you've got to catch? She goes, oh, yeah, there is. And then he takes yeah, the train I'd, station. I'd best be off then. Yeah, yeah, and then at the train station, she's waiting on the platform, and uh, she sees the man in the grey suit and Prospero arguing, and obviously Prospero is sort of fading in and out of existence, it seems. And she's so distracted by this, she steps out onto the train tracks and... It's mm. over. She's hit by a train. What do you think? Yeah. And, well, I wanted to care. <laughs> I did. Um, <laughs> and I thought, and, and you know, clearly this is something that's going to impact people's lives. I thought he was curiously kind of inconsequential. You know, like it, doesn't seem to affect the way her sister talks later in the book yeah. or you know in the following in the, the following couple of scenes as we'll see it brings you tantalizingly close to this moment where there might be something interesting or revealing that you could you know there might actually be a moment of plot mm. and, and and what there turns out to be is um you know a couple of unanswered questions yet more evidence that these two shadowy figures are complete bellends and then the death of a character who I could have quite liked, but hadn't really spent very much time with to that point yeah. in the book, so didn't really. Um, my first re- my first reaction was, well, that was pretty stupid. You know, yeah. he walks off a platform and gets hit by a train. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just but, absent-mindedly. Yeah, and then I thought, and, and I suppose she's a little bit ditzy, um, but, you know, I thought... Yeah, but I, I mean, I that takes a certain kind of... That's a certain amount of ditz, isn't it? It's not yeah. like in, where are we, 1895... It's not as yeah. if trains will whisper quiet back yeah, then. Exactly. You know? yeah. I suppose if you did see what you thought was somebody fading in a native existence, you would be distracted from more mundane matters of, of I, basic train safety. Just but trains or whether or not my feet were still on the ground. I wondered how much of a how much of an involvement the man in the grey suit had with that death. Was um, was this just removing someone who was becoming a bit of a problem or? Is it just an accident because somebody isn't paying attention to keeping everybody safe? Yeah. And I thought at this point she's kind of been removed on purpose. Yeah, that would definitely make sense. But I I didn't get a sense of it in the in the text because the uh, the only time that this AH character isn't kind of like effortlessly creepy and in control of what he tries to be in control of is when he's arguing with his counterpart, this, um, the Prospero. Yeah. So, so they're having an argument, so I kind of find it hard to believe that in that moment he's also thinking about the thoughts of some woman on the other side of the train. Yeah, there's something that happens later in the book, a conversation, which I think disproves the, the theory that it was effectively an assassination. Mm, well, and, and, that, and that it was more of an accident. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later on. Um, so we move on to movement. This is just more about basically um, 
Frederick Thiessen's infatuation with the Night Circus and specifically with Celia, who um, mm. they're developing a bit of a friendship, and you get the feeling that he um, it's a it's a more romantic on 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 his part and, and not so much on Celia's. Kind of a I suppose kind you could draw a parallel. Guitar. Yeah, you could draw a parallel between him and Isabel, I suppose. Although he's a bit o- older. Uh, yeah, that is true. Actually, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Celia visits his clock shop, and he visits the circus, and uh, we just—it's just—I think it's a very much again movement is a, is a good name for the chapter because it's just moving a couple of pieces around for later on. Yeah, we move on to the funeral of uh, is it Tara. See, Tara. This, Tara this is a good example see, of, of why I wasn't that bothered. You made a very deep impression yeah. on you. You can't yeah. remember a name. This, yeah, <laughs> it's a good job I didn't have to give a speech at the wake, isn't it? So this is the, yeah. <laughs> this this, is the we're funeral. all here today to yeah. mourn and celebrate the life of... of <laughs> hang, hang on, it'll come to me. Hang on. Um, uh, she was a, bo- uh, a bog-standard young woman. Uh, <laughs> this chick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's the funeral, and um, Isabel yeah. and Susiko, everybody's there, basically. There's a little conversation between Isabel and Susiko, and uh, Susiko says, uh, kind of basically questions how she died, and Isabel thinks it's, it was an accident, and Susiko gives the impression she isn't so sure. Mm. And we find out during the funeral as well that Isabel isn't just this passive, badly treated character. She's also... Yeah helping hold the circus together through something called tempering and Mm. it turns out later on that it's she's basically helping keep the binding of the circus together somehow and this again is is just putting a marker down for events that happen later in the book the next bit is another one of these tent experiences where we experience the labyrinth tent which is this room's tent which Marco and uh, Celia have been making together so you get a first person experience of that before we uh, scoot over to Bailey again hooray Hooray. uh, good old Bailey good old questionably relevant Bailey so so we we go back to Bailey and Bailey meets up with Poppet and Widget uh, finally and uh, they, they all become pretty good friends pretty quickly uh, they go and explore a bit of the night circus. There's a tent that I particularly love uh, called the Cloud Maze, which is basically a, a, a you can climb this tower and uh, whenever you get sort of to a stage where it's like a lot of platforms that you can climb over, and whenever you get to a point where you can't climb anymore, you just jump off into what's effectively a massive you know, pit of cotton wool and you just land in it, bounce around and then get out. And it sounds great. It sounds a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah I've um, I've heard it said that um uh for many grown-ups their idea of heaven is like a just a big old wacky warehouse where grown-ups are allowed to climb around inside as well yeah the the chapter ends with uh with bailey getting a season pass from uh, poppet and widget meaning he can come back whenever he wants get in for free uh assume you know queue jump get in all the rides yep. so he's uh he's loving that he's made up about oh, it oh yeah the other thing i really loved about this whole chapter was um the character of Widget just seems to be like have a good deal more humour than any of the other characters in the book, really. Yeah, you're a massive um, Widget fan, aren't you? I am. I really like this kid. I don't know why. Well, it's just because he's not. He can do these magical things, but he doesn't allow it to cause him to become this insufferably pretentious, moustache twirling wanker. <laughs> which <laughs> un- I have to say, unfortunately, is the kind of tombra of most of the other characters. 
whereas widgets which is quite funny and quite quite witty and down to earth and stuff and hmm. particularly since he responds to the presence of bailey who after all is kind of making making eyes at his sister <laughs> um he responds to the, the presence of bailey in an incredibly cool way in this incredibly kind of welcoming manner speaking of making eyes onto tete-a-tete which is the last chapter of this part of the book it's another sort of uh soiree when chandra she's pad and and after That's the right. dinner uh we get to a stage where Marco and Celia are alone together. And, and shit it, starts to get smooth. Yeah, yeah. Start the, <laughs> uh, yeah, Marco's brought his Barry White CDs. I was going to say, the only other person <laughs> in the room with them at this point is Barry White. Just, <laughs> just letting it happen. Just yeah. giving it all the bass. Yeah. So there's, um, <laughs> so again, this is the wheels turning and they're getting closer. Uh, mm. As part of this, I, to, for one, I think that Erin Morgenstern writes a romantic scene like this very well. I, I really I, enjoyed these scenes, and I normally uh, I, I can be quite lukewarm to them if they're not done very well. Yeah. Um, and she also peppers it with little extra things that we find out about the characters, especially Marco. Um, mm. For example, we find out that he's been effectively enchanting Chandresh, um, which uh, you, you get a few senses of earlier in the book where Chandrash has got this kind of man crush or almost even maybe even a gay crush on uh, on Marco and it's yeah. because of something that Marco's doing some magic that he's performing um, and also just in order some... to stay in the game you mean just in order to remain engaged yeah. with the with the yeah. circus and you, and you get the feeling that there's also an element of that with Isabel he's he's done something like that with her as well mm. um, and you get this you get this sense of duplicity from him when he exposes his real face to uh, to Celia as well, so he's actually yeah. wearing a different face for the almost the entire time as well. Yeah, which I, I, I mean, it doesn't get more literal than that to say there's someone who's been toothpaste, is it? Yeah, exactly. And as a plot point, it sort of dropped in quite casually. It's like oh, he's yeah. been wearing a what? A yeah. different face the whole time. <laughs> and I'm yeah. still supposed to like this character. In the sharing time, there's a there's a bit from Celia as well, who does a demonstration about what she can do, where she stabs her own hand and then heals it. Obviously, mm. uh, as a after the years of training um, from her father cutting her own from, fingers off from Daddy Dearest. Yeah, so yeah. there's a bit of sharing from both sides, and at the end, um, the the hands touch, and mm. there's this big moment the, in the atmosphere. The, 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 the air, air fizzes, doesn't it? The, yeah. light, the light goes soft focus, and, <laughs> and it's on. Yeah. But, I mean, that, that touching hands thing, I thought reading it, it's a literal version of what people in love feel when, you know, yeah. you see the little sparks flying, you touch hands and things like that. And yeah. it's it's Erin Morgenstern taking that and turning it into a, something you can actually see and ramping it up, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which is quite a nice touch. Uh, very much. And it's you, you're right. It's a very nicely written scene. And I like it a lot because it's so understated. Because it's, yeah. because it's not like, um, you know, it doesn't then go all Fifty Shades of Grey with extra magic wands. Like, yeah. it, it's just like they touch and there's this electric spark. Yeah, so that brings this part of the book to the end and also brings our podcast to the end for this time. Um, it does. I, I just a couple of thoughts. At this point in the book, this is where I was with it. 
um, I really I was loving the atmosphere of the circus and you know the the bits and pieces and the experience of, of of being in the circus every now and then and just finding out more about this magical place. I thought that was great. Mm. Um, I, I actually was in, I was enjoying this love story and the tension between the love story on one hand and this idea of a, a competition, which seems like it's going to be eventually from what it's being built up to be eventually a lethal competition because only one of them can win and one of them can survive apparently. So that's interesting. And and this, this tension between the two and which one's going to break. Mm. Um, I didn't really like the Bailey stuff. I didn't like jumping forward to it. I didn't really see where it was going. And, um, and I always just felt like it was putting the brakes on the rest of the story. And the other thing I wanted to say was I wasn't, I was struggling to shown in this in Tara's death. I was struggling to really care about any of the other characters. I kind of had a, I did like the main two because I was interested in this this tension between the love and the competition, but the other characters, I don't know. I didn't really feel like I would be devastated if any if anything bad happened to any of them. Really, I I would agree with you there, and I think, like I said, that that was really my response to like Tara's death was, why don't I care more that this character's died? If a character dies, it should be something that I care about. And actually, I was just like, anyway, moving on. You know, like I just didn't feel at all moved by it, which is very sad. Well, there'll be more dramatic things occurring in the next part of the book. So we'll see. uh, We'll see if uh, it can move you, Dave, in uh, in ways that (laughs) Tara's untimely demise did not. I challenge you, Erin Morgenstern, make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there is the challenge and uh, and we will find out if she manages to do it i mean i i think you'll get long odds on it but we'll find out if she manages to do it um, you're saying i'm just a next... heartless fiend i, I bring <laughs> i bring book. only cynicism and take only sorrow <laughs> okay on that bombshell <laughs> we'll wrap it up for, for this uh for this cast all right right you are and on the, and uh, just before we go obviously if you want to get involved with your own takes on the book, why not send in a few thoughts? It's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. 